I've always been fascinated by big, grand ideas. I've always been fascinated by social causes and going beyond the societal norm in order to affect change. I've learned that enormous feats of social change require enormous and oftentimes unprecedented work. And that's something that I've really learned myself. So a, a quote I always try and live by just to be an idealist in vision and a pragmatist in execution. Welcome back to Infinity Inc, where I talk to some of the world's brightest founders and thinkers about their bold visions for the future and the thinking that went into them, all in an easily digestible half an hour. We'll be focusing on ideas and companies that can have a transformative impact on the world, including everything from new school systems to seasteading. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. This week's guest is the prodigious Jack O'Connor, founder of Moyanua, a revolutionary farming tool to increase the yields of farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, and a recent UN youth delegate. In the episode, Jack shares a dictum he strives to live his life by, be idealistic in vision and pragmatic in execution. It's something that's really stuck with me and something that Jack exemplifies in his own life. In this episode, we touch on a lot of themes relevant to young people, how to create an authentic vision for your life, how to take pragmatic steps towards it, and how to make sure that it all doesn't get too much, and touch a lot on mindfulness and and that side of things as well. I found this really helpful, and in the weeks since recording this episode, I've revisited it many times when dealing with some of those challenges. I hope you enjoy it and, and get as much from it as I did. But without further ado, here is the great and powerful Jack O'Connor. Jack, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I've been looking up to you for a while ever since you gave a talk to us in Trinity uh, that time at a social enterprise event. But for people who aren't familiar, uh, do you mind giving a short bio about your your expertise? Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Will. First and foremost, excited to chat with you now properly this evening. But uh, for a bit of context, my as you mentioned, my own name is Jack, and I'm currently residing as the United Nations Youth Representative for Ireland. Uh, on top of that, I would be an avid social entrepreneurial fan, more so than practitioner at the moment. But I am currently engaged with the which is a sub-Saharan African smallholder farmer development tool. Wow! So there's there's quite a lot there. Come with all that in the in the conversation. But first, the substrate of your thinking. You wrote in a LinkedIn article a while back. Mm-hmm. Always ensure that your vision is steadfast. Keep the vision in mind and be prepared to roll with the punches you get from others. There's quite a lot to that. There's, there's that kind of um, definite optimism that you should go out and, and create things in the world and the belief in yourself to do that. And then also the kind of ability to deal with the hardships that come along the way. And that's kind of a rare, rare mindset for, for someone uh, as young as yourself to adopt. Where do you think that came from? Yeah, it's it's definitely a good good thing to look into introspectively. And I've had good time, I suppose, during the lockdown to do that. When it comes to that mindset, I suppose I've always been fascinated by big, grand ideas. I've always been fascinated by social causes and, I suppose, going beyond the societal norm in order to affect change. I've learned, particularly over the past year or two, that enormous feats of social change require enormous and oftentimes unprecedented work. And that's something that I've really learned myself. So a, a quote I always try and live by, and it, it sounds good in theory, which is to be an idealist in vision and a pragmatist in execution. 
mm-hmm. I will be the first person to admit that I am fantastic at having the idealist and vision side of things down, but I still have a lot of work to do on being a pragmatist in execution. So it's having that self-awareness first and foremost that there is a lot of work to be done and that none of it is necessarily easy. But going back to the motivation behind why I like these things, to be honest, another factor of it is I love a challenge. I always like the underdog story, as cliche as it sounds. So just engaging with things that are larger than myself or larger than a small scale thing is something that just inspires me and kind of chasing these things without exactly knowing what the end goal is or where it is or where it's going to take me. It's just something that really interests me, to be quite honest. Yeah, you're speaking my, my language there. I'm, I'm very much the same. Very good at the, the grand vision, but sometimes the execution is lacking. So let's maybe talk about one of your first grand visions, which was Moya Nua. And when did that come about? And how did you even begin to, to work on it? Because it, it was such a, a radical idea. Yeah, so truth be told, this is the byproduct of a BT Young Scientist project that I did in sixth year, so my final year in secondary school. For a bit of context, BT Young Scientist is a extremely large-scale Irish secondary school level science and technology competition for second-level students of all ages and all backgrounds. Um, as I said, I was doing it in my sixth year, and to be quite frank with you, Will, I did it to get a week off school initially. I, I always loved going, deviating from the academic constraints that you can find yourself in, oftentimes mm-hmm. within second-level education especially. So. We had seen a documentary, my colleague at the time who I did the project with, called Living on a Dollar. And it followed a number of teenagers in the United States who traveled to Guatemala, again, far away from sub-Saharan Africa, where we're involved in now. But they work with the locals. Uh, they work with smallholder farming communities, and they understand some of the large issues that are at play on the ground level, if you pardon the pun. And mm. with that, a large issue that they saw and that we saw off the back of it was with the planting process where smallholder farmers in extremely impoverished areas could not afford farm machinery, for example, like tractors or anything that we would be used to, but oftentimes can't adequately support farm animals like oxen or bull or horse or any animal like that to make the process easier. So we started looking into potential ways that we could do this at a low cost level. And what we ended up designing was a handheld seed planter, a seed planter which was extremely simple and easy, one that could be manufactured cheaply and efficiently and could be used by a smallholder farmer with little to no skill level Mm. and could just expedite the process and make the entire process a lot easier for themselves to reduce labor intensity first and foremost and uh, a couple of things after that. Wow. So, you know, a a lot of people would have similar ideas, but Mm. the big ideas like that can be kind of daunting, you know, Um, they're they're requiring, sure, but Paul... Graham riffs on this is one of his essays. He's, he says, you know, there's a line in, in Being John Malkovich where there's a very sophisticated, attractive woman and she turns the, the main character down and she says, like, here's the thing. If you ever got me, you wouldn't know what to do with me. And that's basically what big ideas uh, say to us, you know. We, sometimes we think, oh, how, could, how can I do that? What gave you the self-belief to believe that you could actually, you know, have some impact there? Uh, starting out I think it was ignorance as opposed to self-belief I didn't know any better again like our initial thing was to get into young scientists so that we could go up to Dublin for a week I'll be very honest about that and then from developing the project up until January which is when the exhibition takes place we started getting in touch with the likes of Irish Aid which is the Irish government's um, foreign aid department and we also started working with a number of different charities just to gain a bit more insight to it because anything better standardised television or 
or social media adverts that you see for Africa, I would have had no real experience with that or, or any mm. real exposure. Mm. But we were fortunate enough to win the Science and Development Award within DBT Young Scientists, which encompasses a 10-day research and development trip to a sub-Saharan country with a charity called Self-Help Africa. And it was when we were over there, it was, it was February of 2018, when we traveled over there with Self-Help Africa, and we got to chat with farmers on the ground. We got to bring over the initial prototype, which has, again, thankfully changed and developed a lot further than what it was initially. And we got to see the real impact that a something as simple that we drew up back in our secondary school could have on smallholder farmers who people who honestly have very little else to work off and that were so appreciative of a product as simple as that yeah and it that it was at that point where i suppose the ignorance and more so the innocence of the project went away and you started to see the magnitude of something again so simple could have on the lives of people it's an entirely different scenario in society that I would have been accustomed to anyways so yeah that really burst any form of bubble that I had of, of, of innocence or childhood yeah I, I went on a trip to Zambia when I was in fifth year a similar experience of a kind of a realization that you know there is life outside Ireland and there's exactly. life in a lot of these countries that you know they don't have a lot of the basics that we just take completely for granted but I think it was obviously like very important that you were able to talk to those farmers and actually, you know, talk to the users, uh, so to speak. And because maybe some people, when they're getting involved with social enterprise for the first time, um, kind of think that they might know the answer without actually, you know, talking to people that that it's going to affect. So yeah, maybe speak about, you know, obviously it's gone on to be quite successful and and you're featured in in Forbes and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how did the project turn out? Yeah, so I'll actually bring you up on one of those points because what you've said is actually resonates very through. And again, dealing with the end user and dealing with consumer has been so vital for us from the get-go because A, it humbled us and B, we got to really understand the problems at hand. It's again, it's like the classic milkshake marketing style thing. I mean, you had to tailor exactly toward the end user and how their daily life functioned and how your product can be functional in that way. Mm-hmm. So working directly with them got us realizing that we needed brand new materials. So up until that point, we had been using entirely stainless steel, which again is good in practice and everything, but it's just not efficient enough. Yeah. Whereas something as simple as utilizing a local material like bamboo, which grows over the likes of sub-Saharan Africa and along the coffee belt, essentially grows as easy as grass grows here, to be quite frank. So understanding that as well, but also understanding that we could do better. So instead of making the product more complex or more unique we reduce complexity of it entirely to prototype the prototype that it stands at now which is essentially a glorified spade on a stick thank god i'm not in charge of the marketing of the product because i don't think i do a great yeah. job but that's what it is in its in its purest form so i suppose moving on from that we always had to kind of you know young youthful taking on the world side of things but that trip really set in stone or got the ball rolling about the practicalities that we're going to be used to do it. And again, I'll be the first person to admit, we left it on the back burner for a long time. It's only now really these past few months that the ball has really started to roll quickly. So for example, we were just working with Gold Global now as our primary partner to have full pilot program rollout of the manufacturing, distribution and testing of the product, which is fantastic for us at the end of this year, the end of the fourth quarter. So that's, you know, that's a huge stepping stone for us as well. But 
you know, there's still a long way to go. We've been very fortunate to get, you know, awards and accolades, as you mentioned, the Forbes featured article. But until we have planters properly in the hands of smallholder farmers being manufactured, not only making their labor intensity easier, but also creating the potential for job creation in these least developed countries, I will not consider it any form of success. Well, it's certainly evolving into one or on that track and, and fair play to you for all the work that's gone into it. I'm curious, you know, a big part of making kind of any venture as successful or any cause that you want to um, promote successful is kind of getting media attention. Um, mm. And how did that Forbes article come about? So I suppose the, sh- the short answer is it came off the back of, the, of Moyonua winning the World Trade Center's Peace to Trade Global World Cup. It was the first time that the World Trade Center Association ran a student enterprise competition um, on a global level, and we were fortunate enough to win the award. And off the back of that, there was a press release sent out to Forbes and a subsequent interview. But to me, it shows the importance of both having appropriate connections and having relentless authenticity. Because Mm -hmm. at the start of the project, I I think there was a certain element. We were trying to fake it till we made it, and that isn't something that I like nowadays in my, you know, slowly aging process of, of going through the process of Moyonua. But it was just about having your heart on your sleeve because we weren't, to us, this wasn't a standard startup or anything like that. And we certainly weren't selling cookies. We were creating a product that could have vastly life-changing thing or life-changing yeah. results for some of the most impoverished people in some of the most impoverished nations. So understanding the gravity of the situation and more so the... I suppose the potential of the project, it should it be a success, really created a good authentic story, I feel. And I think that's something that people can buy into pretty easily because it's on such a personal level. You know, the finance side of things obviously is extremely important to the success and the sustainability of the project. But I'll be the first person to admit also that it is not the, the personal income side of things has zero interest to me for this project. Because, again, it started off as a young scientist project back in 2016. So, you know, the more impact we can get on that, the better. And I do think that having that authenticity and honestly caring goes a long way for the media. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So kind of moving on from there, and you you were probably tinkering away on on that uh, during the first few years in college. And then you kind of applied to the the UN. How did that come about and, and why did you decide to go for that? Yeah, so similar to uh, Moyonua or along the track of the Moyonua program, I was fortunate enough to be selected to present Moyonua to Amina J. Mohammed, who sits currently as United Nations Deputy, Deputy Secretary General. So she made a visit to Ireland in August of 2018. And I was asked on behalf of Irish Aid to present a project. And from that, then I learned that the two MCs of the night were the two former UN youth delegates. And it was my first time I'd been exposed to it. Again, obviously, I was well familiar with the United Nations, but nothing really beyond the Sustainable Development Goals because that was what was relevant to Moyanu at the time. And I did a bit of research at the time and completely forgot about it again. But the application process opened up in February of 2019. And I suppose Jack being Jack, I just tried my luck. I had zero political experience or anything, but I knew my way around getting projects done. And I knew, I suppose the more fire and brimstone side of development work that had to be required and how that combined with young people can be a fantastic force to be reckoned with. So it just applied and simple simple enough interview process. And next thing I know, I was on a flight to Geneva. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, you always got to, if you don't buy a ticket to the lotto, you won't, you'll never win. So you get into UN and, and you um, head over there. What was that experience like? And I believe it's still going on now. It was a perpetual cycle of my mind being blown. And that's the only way I can ever describe it. As I alluded to our first trip after, I think we found out a week before we were on a plane to Geneva. And our first meeting was with human rights defenders of LGBTQI+. So people who had to remain entirely anonymous while they were in Geneva because they had already suffered from uh, persecution and to some extent torture from some of their native countries. So them being there put their lives at risk. And again, like being over in sub-Saharan Africa, dealing with smallholder farmers, any form of innocence that you have just bursts at that stage. Yeah. It's you're dealing with some of the most solemn and the most serious crimes and issues that exist more so in the humanitarian sector than the development sector, admittedly. But when you're there, it, it's just being thrown into the deep end and it's to a certain degree sink or swim because you're there with a responsibility to only represent your fellow young people, whether nationally or internationally, but you're also representing your country, a country that at the time was running for a security council seat in the United Nations. Yeah. So you understand pretty quickly the importance of your work there and you know that certainly isn't a photo opportunity or, or anything like that which is fantastic because look i think we both know at this stage there can be a lot of youth organizations and youth ventures which do seem to appear more so as a photo op than anything else but yeah. working with in geneva on the get-go and in new york we spent a month in new york uh for the un general assembly and again that was just day after day my horizons were just being broadened to no end it was great that sounds like an amazing experience what was it like kind of being in that experience with some of obviously the most promising uh, young people in the world, like what are you going to learn there that, that rubbed off on you? Um, or did you meet anyone that, that was particularly impressive? I met a lot of people. Again, with the United Nations, it encompasses people from every nation, from every walk of life. There were people who loved the fact that I was engaged with business. There were people who hated the fact that I was engaged with business. So you meet everybody on every form of spectrum so it was surreal for a lot of it and again hindsight was the biggest learning tool for me when it came to any of those trips but particularly the month in new york for the general assembly i suppose the biggest thing that i did learn is the importance of people over titles i think we're all fairly susceptible to to a certain degree judging someone based on their title but when you're engaging with heads of state all the way down to security personnel all the way over to janitors and all the way over to uh, fellow youth delegates like ourselves you start to realize that a person's character and working with these people on a human level really supersedes and, and is far more important than working with them based on titles yeah nobody has it figured out i suppose and, and no you know we're all just <laughs> none whatsoever we go along I suppose. yeah if even exactly. like, the state don't have it figured out then <laughs> you know that's also off the hook so obviously a lot of exciting projects there a lot of um important work but sometimes looking all get a bit too much and, and i was wondering you wrote a very good piece lately that really resonated with a lot of people myself being one and it was about dealing with kind of anxiety and, and that side of things how do you kind of strike a balance between taking these big problems kind of take, taking them onto your shoulders in a sense without kind of letting them crush you, you know, without feeling kind of pressure, mm. you know, without, without it all getting too much. I do think that the more you engage with these things, the 
easier they get. So, for example, dealing with Moyanua, like ignorance went a long way for a long time. But I think when I started really understanding the gravity of it, it all hit very quickly. And that spiked up my levels of anxiety because I started realizing I've taken on heavy responsibilities here. Yeah. Heavy responsibilities for someone who is only just going to college and can still get lost on his way to a lecture hall. It's, yeah. uh, so, you know, it certainly adds a very large sense or a very large gravity to that. But again, it's, it's a very subjective thing, finding that work-life balance or finding whatever form of balance that it is that you're seeking. And the one thing that works for you may not work for me. You know, again, it's, mm-hmm. it's going back to cliches. I mean, <laughs> one man's treasure, you know, it's so you really have to just kind of gauge it yourself. And it's just trial and error, I find, first and foremost. And it does really depend on my mood as well. Obviously, you have the bare essentials, like getting away from screens as much as possible. Whether it's, and as well as that, the likes of meditation or, or yoga or anything like that, trying to get outdoors as much as possible. But I mean, for me, I have a couple of sheets and, and tips that I'm working on myself, but even then, they were fighting the whole time. And mm. there's some days and there's some periods where I can be really productive. You know, I can be up at 5 a.m., have the meditation done, have the journal entry both morning and night. I can be gone on two, three K runs and, you know, my diet will be perfect. There are other days and I spend the whole thing watching reeling in the years or, or doing something absolutely pointless yeah. and again it's about i suppose cherishing those downtimes as well you know cherishing i suppose the the innocence and, and the privileges that you have as well that you can do these things that you can do the monotonous or, or the entirely unproductive and and yeah. seemingly irrelevant things but i think once you start looking back you start realizing they're a bit more relevant to your life than you may give them credit for at the time yeah i think that's it's important that you just said that i'm absolutely the same I'm, I'm big into my kind of, you know, optimizing everything, but then there are times when it, it all just kind of falls apart and, yeah. and you know, you, you can't don't have the energy to do anything at all. You retweeted or reposted a, a thing from Ariana Huffington earlier today about kind of reading back on some of your past thoughts and wanting to scream to your past self to, mm-hmm. you know, stop worrying about everything, stop, stop having so many doubts and, and take more risks. What, yeah. what else would you kind of shout back to, to younger Jack? to maybe avoid some of the pitfalls? The the biggest thing for me was to enjoy the process a lot more. And again, it's something that you hear everybody say, uh, but it's something that's really hard to listen to Mm. when you're in the trenches or when you're in the pits. But it's embracing, you know, it's embracing the mess every now and then because, you know, there'll be a time when you're engaging in things that were seemingly impossible to you like two or three years ago. And now, uh, or you can do them and there are sometimes i mean like let's take let's take presentations for example there was a, a dcu vocalized the enactus um project are running a communications camp at the moment and i was asked to give tips on presentation and i was looking back on some of the tips i gave and there's times where i would almost kill to be really nervous giving a presentation again because yeah. it, it's that innocence you know it's about appreciating those times um of uncertainty because it's the uncertainty that not only helps you grow but for me it's kind of a thrill-seeking thing as well because you don't know where you're going to end up so definitely like alongside everything that that ariana huffington said is just kind of enjoy the mess sometimes because the mess can be really fun if you can see if you can start to appreciate i suppose the nuances and the subtleties to it it could be it could be amazing fun no matter how stressful it is yeah i think when you look up to to people you admire you you tend to think they're they're just like an oasis of calm or like everything Mm -hmm. was you know, it was perfect circumstance for them the whole time. But 
then kind of looking back at your own life, anything that you've, you've really achieved or, or accomplished, it was like always the times that you were absolutely yeah. terrified. You were never ready for it, but you kind of just went and did, and did it anyway. And those are, those are some really great times as well. Like in the lead up to say, I did a, a marathon last year and uh, I know a lot of people do them, but I was very nervous before and I was in like, oh, you know, an hour before I was like, oh, why did I sign up to this? Oh, I'm, you know, this is going to be so bad. I could just pull out. But then you're halfway through and you're thinking, you know, this is, this is the best time of my life. You know, it's just, uh, it's free it. and growing and you, you end up just really enjoying it at the time and, and looking mm-hmm. back at it with, uh, with a smile and that's exactly it it's like jumping into the sea you know it's a you can have crazy fears beforehand but once you're inside there you don't want to get out it's uh it's just an amazing experience and and like touching on from that point as well i think it's really important to mention that when i was i suppose dealing with all forms of professional and career levels within new york in particular yeah the big gauge for me was understanding how these people operated because as you said it's oftentimes really easy and you can be very susceptible to assume that heads of state or people in high ranking positions can have it all together and be really collective and it's not until you see whether it's a minister or whether you see a diplomat or an ambassador shaking like a leaf or panicking or not having any clue or creating some form of absolutely massive blunder that you start to realize the human element to these seemingly i won't say robotic things but you know it, it, it kind of it, seeing it, seeing kind of the person behind the LinkedIn profile, I guess that is it. exactly it. You know, it's it's kind of taking people down from a pedestal that they either put themselves on or that other put them on, and it's just about engaging with them on a human level as best you can. And it's humbling as well for both sides because you really start to understand the human element to all of these things that we're engaging with, no matter what it is. You look, diplomacy is obviously is one example and, and quite a complex one at that. But anything, you take entrepreneurship or you take business or teaching or education or anything. And once you can strip it down to a human level a bit more, I feel that you can gain a lot more understanding, a lot more fulfillment out of it. Mm. And, and is there anything that you kind of do or, or, or say to yourself to remind yourself to, to kind of take it to that human level? Or is it kind of just the experiences you, you put yourself in? But again, as, as we mentioned briefly before, uh, before the interview started, it's um, just to relax, man. It's, it's such, yeah. it's it, those two words. And again, it, it's such a casual thing to say to myself, but that's a big thing for me. And again, to enjoy the process because I'm fortunate enough now more so than in the past that anything I engage with is because it is my choice. You know, there, there's no gun to my head. There's, uh, you know, I'm not backed into a corner. I have the freedom to do essentially whatever I want once it's, once it's within the constitution. So having yeah. that liberty and freedom in order to do those things. And again, having the experiences of working and dealing with people who have very limited choices and options within their life and still seem to be making the most of it really opens your eyes and gives you a fantastic perspective. Kind of puts a fire under you as well to start appreciating things a lot more. Yeah. Um, when you're complaining if the Wi-Fi is slow or if you're complaining yeah. that a bus is late or something like that and then you start chatting with people who have spent perhaps years, even decades fighting for their lives or fighting for their rights yeah. it, uh, it, it really shuts you up to be honest yeah exactly, it's, it's a huge perspective shift mm-hmm. I suppose so yeah you could you know, there's a lot of things you could work on and there's probably a lot of tempting projects and, and things kind of pulling mm-hmm. you in certain directions how do you decide what you want to direct your attention and, and effort towards? The biggest thing for me is the 
I'll be more inclined to say yes to something if I, if I will happily stay up till four or five o'clock in the morning, every morning doing it. And that really does limit your options because it's very hard to find something with sustained passion. Yeah. Uh, and uh, taking fluctuating passions uh, into consideration, of course, a big thing I've had to learn is how to say no. Yeah. I am a massive say yes and figure it out later. I don't know what the exact quote is from Richard Branson, but it's something along those lines. And it's something that I always did because... I enjoyed being thrown into the deep end. Again, I'm not fully sure why that is, but it was it's a big thing for me right now is learning to say no because you can only be effective if you take on, you know, by knowing your limits, that's how yeah. you're going to reach optimal effectiveness. And there has been far too many times, like an incalculable amount of times where I've just taken on too many things and either I drop the ball on some of them or else I keep going and I end up dropping the ball on all of them and completely wearing myself out. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's noble to say yes to things, but it's not always intelligent. Yeah. I've definitely been there myself. Uh, and uh, there's a framework I kind of think about is it's either a hell yes or a no. Um, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise you kind of end up chasing 10 rabbits and getting none. Mm-hmm. So kind of with that in mind, like what really important causes do you think not enough people are working on or or not enough people are concerned about that that you think you'd really like to to work on and push forward in the future? I have an obvious bias towards uh, sub-Saharan African development, which sounds quite niche, but didn't when you look at the population currently in Africa and more particularly the estimated population growth between now and 2050 um, reported to be well over a billion people by 2050. And it kind of shows you, oh, okay, it's not actually much of a niche there. But yeah. I think it's something, speaking in terms of the geographic constraint of like the Ireland of Ireland, something that isn't really focused on by young people is, yeah, development work, humanitarian work. And, and I have a lot of respect for people who are involved in policy of it. But I think that there is a strong lack in understanding the, the more entrepreneurial or the business or the process side of things now i am not saying by any stretch of imagination i know even one percent of the processes that are going to be involved in creating a more equitable situation for those within sub-saharan africa and least developed countries more so but i think applying a business mind uh, in my own experience whenever i've applied a business mind to development issues i have found to get good breakthroughs really yeah. Um, things and again it's just having that different perspective but when you're working with multiple stakeholders whether it's within policy or charity or development work or, or even intergovernmental and you can kind of approach it from a different not by any means a correct point of view but a different point of view of just understanding the business side of things yeah. it gives a really good well-rounded refined perspective some great work that's being done so it's something that I always try to encourage people to do and whether that's people in third level who are fortunate enough to attend college to join the likes of entrepreneurship societies or to join an actus or so, which focuses on the more social entrepreneurship side of things. On the flip side as well, it, it can be a, a bad pitfall for people to engage with these things and to have the mentality of, uh, of the fact that simply holding hands and singing Kumbaya is going to make change. It's um, again, you have to be very pragmatic about these things. Yeah. There are some problems that, that exist even here in Ireland that have been here for generations and that are deep rooted within society. So, yeah. you know, quite often liking and sharing or changing your profile picture may do a small bit of change, but uh, it's uh, I wouldn't be holding my breath. It's, it's just about being pragmatic and understanding the magnitude of the work and the collaboration that has to be done. And working with people you disagree is something that's really important as well. 
Absolutely, yeah, I totally agree there. I've probably fallen into that trap in the past. I, I did start one kind of kind of clothing brand in sixth year, okay. uh, where we gave the profits to an orphanage in in Zambia that that I visited. But I was very much, you know, in the mindset that oh, this is gonna it's gonna be revolutionary, uh, <laughs> change the world. But um, I, I suppose you know you you have to really consider the roots of the problems and for every swipe at the leaves you can stab at the root and that's going to be more effective and so for people that are that obviously on instagram you see a lot of people kind of uh, really concerned about these issues and wanting to to make change but maybe not quite sure how to get involved in social entrepreneurship what would be your advice then of kind of the first steps of having of dipping their toes in that kind of activity my first bit of advice is exactly that just dip your toes first of all if you're not fully sure about things don't jump into straight away because it's yeah. easy to get caught up in the initial hyperthinks and then be there six months later feeling extremely overwhelmed because i suppose the primary thing about social enterprise over a standard enterprise for want of a better term is that it's working with humans, you know, it's working with people to try and alleviate issues or challenges that they have not been able to solve themselves. And yeah. that is fantastic, rewarding, and without question, the most fulfilling thing I have ever engaged with. But by far, I have had like my worst downs from overthinking these problems and working with these challenges. So dip your toes yeah. in, first of all, engage in it in a fun way, you know, embrace the youth, um, embrace the youth side of things. There are some, some fantastic organizations, like I already mentioned, likes of an actus. Um, even the likes of Gold Global are running uh, youth development workshops on a biannual basis, I think. And just engaging with the local community on whatever it is. If you're fortunate enough to have a rough idea of a certain passion, whether it's like yourself, whether it's fashion and fitness or whether it be something along the lines of, I don't know, music, the arts or even science and technology. Just even <laughs> quick Googles and quick YouTubes will alleviate a lot of those problems as well for yourself. And just engaging it in a fun way, as I always try and take people, as I always try and advise people, particularly those who work with Moyanua, is to just treat this like another module. You know, it's uh, you don't you like don't expect perfection certainly straight away, and, and certainly don't ever expect perfection really, because yeah. you're only going to be disappointed. But just use it as a learning module when you're young. It's um, because if you can kind of double down and really engage with the learning side of things and develop yourself and develop your perspective and experience you're going to be far more beneficial to these people in 20 or 30 years time when you actually have that experience and have that learning. And again, yeah. it's, it's whatever way is going to be most beneficial for you. I'm horrific when it comes to academic learning or, or the formal education side of things, yeah. because even from the days of the leaving cert, I just don't have any <laughs> attention span when it comes to things that I'm not yeah. fully engrossed with. So for me, it's always just rolling up sleeves and engaging in project work or whether it's interviews or working with people on, on a human to human level, which has been made inextricably more difficult thanks to the lockdown. But yeah, um, that's just my way of learning. But again, it's try to enjoy it as much as you can, because there are some big challenges out there which can and are being solved. You know, there's some great initiatives being done on a global level and as well as that on on a national and at local levels, whether it's, it's Dublin or Limerick, but it's just kind of engaging things that you enjoy with because you're going to be way more beneficial to those people at the end of the day if you're seriously passionate about it. Yeah. And, you know, to accept those downtimes where you may feel a bit down or a bit burnt out 
and but just to keep going you know just to really enjoy the process as much as you can because you know it, it's really enjoyable maybe maybe i'm i'm in the few saying that uh, maybe it, it says more about me than other people but it, it's something that just really drives me and i can't see myself doing anything other than these things for the rest of my life to be quite frank well so passion has come up quite a lot in the conversation and mm-hmm. it's palpable in your voice you're a very passionate guy what would you advise to people that are maybe coming out of secondary school and, and are just not sure what they want to do with their lives and think maybe they haven't found their passion yet if that's you know something they need to find how would you advise them to to go about you know deciding what they actually want to dedicate their lives to i suppose for me i've always sought out experiences over anything else uh, particularly over material goods if you're going down to college route if you're you know getting your ceo results on december september or anything like that and you're looking at third level join societies as best as you can uh, because again, that's a really informal setting to learn more importantly, what you don't like rather than what you do like. I joined a number of societies in college and, you know, it was just more a scratching off exercise and ruling them out as opposed yeah. to ruling certain things in. If you're fortunate enough now and again, look, pandemic doesn't allow that really, but I, I try and travel as often as possible. You know, again, past year, I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel to some really cool places with work or, you know, with, with the UN and with Moyanua. But other than that, before this lockdown, I was on a flight every couple of weeks. You know, just, if it wasn't work, it was a very cheap, very, very cheap Ryanair flight and an even cheaper hostel yeah. uh, in some place. And just going out and exploring these places, that's something that I'm like, I, I love the history of countries, which again is something which is seemingly irrelevant. But I've learned so much about people and about cultures in that regard. Things that you can never truly understand in a textbook. You, don't, you, you can't learn much about Eastern Europe or, or Sub Saharan Africa by reading whatever textbooks documentaries yeah. help of course but um not the same thing as as, as being in, inside in the middle of Blantyre, inside the middle of Lilongwe in malawi um trying to negotiate within a farmer's market in your very rough chewa yeah very hands-on approach and mm. and that's probably uh, the only way to to really get a, a firm understanding of things so you're speaking about kind of going through the the history of countries and mm. and and that kind of thing and I was wondering, are there any individuals maybe throughout history uh, that you kind of hold as intellectual heroes or people you strive to, to emulate? There are a lot of people who I find extremely interesting. The jury is still out in the vast majority of them, as opposed okay. uh, whether I'd like to emulate them or not. Yeah. But there are some fantastic people. Seemingly uncorrelated to everything I'm engaged with, I'm fascinated by the American um, civil rights movement of the mid-1900s. Yeah. And again, I have no real reason why, whether it's class struggle or whether it's just understanding of people coming together for a common cause for, you know, better rights for human beings. So because of that, you take all the protagonists. Martin Luther King Jr. is a fantastically intriguing individual who did some great things and, and who was quite controversial in some regards as well. Understanding the flip side of things, the Kennedy brothers, whether it's John F. Kennedy or Bobby Kennedy, who were both... One more reluctant than the other, admittedly, but who were both pretty involved in the civil rights movement for African-Americans around that time. You look at the more, not extreme, but the more controversial figures, even more so than that, and the likes of Malcolm X and the likes of the Nations of Israel and the Nation of Islam, which is what I'm doing researching at the moment. And it's just interesting to see all the protagonists and all those key players and then to see the end result from that. Yeah. And the American civil rights movement is just one example in an endless amount of examples. I mean, you look here in Ireland, 
and our strive for independence. But you even look at things completely unrelated to civil rights and you look at innovation, as you said, like Sir Peter Thiel and like Sir Paul Graham. And you just get to see these bubbles of people who are just fascinating. And yeah. I suppose I'm, a, I'm attracted to fascination and near obscurity that I am to someone that I can emulate because yeah. I'm very cognizant of the fact that I have a certain set of skills, attributes, likes and interests yeah. and more so background and, and call it luck. I know Peter Thiel isn't overly gone in, in the idea of luck, but you, you talk about these back or these factors that are pretty unique to me. So that's why I try and steer clear from emulating or seeing yeah. one person as it, because if I feel if I did that, I would have, uh, albeit a very large or, or a very high one, but it would be a glass ceiling all the same. So I kind of like to stay in my own way yeah. as best as possible. Well, like we, we've, we've touched on a few cliches today, <laughs> but you know, they are true. I guess the, one of them being that there's only one you. And if you imitate other people, you're always going to come in second. Um, but there's something very, very profound to that, that like the, the world needs your impact and your unique mm. voice and kind of to betray that would be almost a disservice to the world and I, and I think you're very right about taking inspiration from these people but kind of incorporating it into mm-hmm. into what you do and being your own man and, and, and going forth like that well Jack this has been a, a very inspiring conversation I think the, the main thing I'm going to take take from it is have a vision have um, something in mind or an ideal uh, but then get down um, and get to work and, <laughs> you know, be pragmatic in, in your actions. It's been a pleasure, Jack. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much. We'll appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Infinity Inc., where we talk to some of the brightest founders and thinkers with bold visions for the future, but are rooted in daily actions and taking pragmatic steps towards them. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jack, and it struck on a lot of the keynotes and Irrelevant to my to my own life, one being how to craft a, an authentic vision for your life and how to actually work towards it. And um, so, for more thrilling uh, conversations like this, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and keep checking for the weekly episodes. All the best. Hope you have a great week. Thanks. Well.